Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 FM in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 7 p.m. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Yo, what's good? What's good, New York? This is Jack Devine. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute live from the new WBAI studios. We're a socialist radio show and podcast for members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 95,000 members nationwide. And NYCDSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 9,000 members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Once again, it's your boy, JD, and I'm co-hosting tonight with... Hi, I'm Amy Wilson, she, her, proud alumni of the People's University CUNY, and I'm happy to be here for tonight's show. And the contract covering over 30,000 workers through the Professional Staff Congress of CUNY expired late last month. And the members of the union are joining with CUNY students, alumni, and the NYC community to fight for a new contract that will not only improve working condition for CUNY's faculty and staff, but also move towards a more equitable, just, and vibrant public university system in the largest city in the country. On tonight's show, I'm speaking with my union siblings, Zoe and Evan, on how PSC members organizing for raises, justice, and community, and a contract that reflects the people's CUNY. We'll be taking your calls later in the show, so please get ready for that. But first, the headlines with Caroline Van, uh, Van Zeitis. Hello, listeners. This is Caroline with your headlines for today, Tuesday, February 28th. In local news, the New York Police Department's Director of Legislative Affairs was absent for a New York City Council Public Safety Committee oversight hearing regarding the NYPD's strategic response group. The NYPD falsely blamed a gag order for their failure to attend. The strategic response group was central to a multi-million dollar settlement with peaceful protesters who were violently attacked during a demonstration in response to Minneapolis law enforcement's murder of George Floyd in 2020. A panel of judges on New York State's third department struck down the city of Albany's good cause eviction law, first passed in 2021, claiming that only the state has the power to pass such a law. Governor Kathy Hochul still refuses to comment on whether she supports the popular statewide good cause eviction bill. Meanwhile, tenants facing eviction are struggling to attain their guaranteed legal representation in housing court. Between 2019 and 2021, the number of housing units in Ridgewood, Queens, registered as regulated, dropped over 65%, even though the 2019 rent laws made it nearly impossible to deregulate housing. Mayor Eric Adams' decision to allow some remote work from municipal office workers, represented by the Union District Council 37, may create tension as he negotiates with other labor unions that represent workers who cannot do their jobs from home. Governor Hochul has proposed an increase of nearly $50 million for prosecutors' offices in her state budget proposal, but no increase in funding for criminal defense. A worst-of-the-worst list 
put out by the Adams administration to suggest that the state's bail reforms were driving an increase in crime was based on sealed arrest records that were illegally accessed by the NYPD. A construction company operator was convicted March 2nd in connection with the death of laborer Luis Sanchez Almonte, who was fatally crushed by 15,000 pounds of debris on a job site in 2018 in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. A five-alarm fire that occurred at a supermarket on Grand Concourse and 181st Street was caused by a scooter's lithium-ion battery. A proposed state law would make some Metropolitan Transit Authority buses free to ride in the coming years. The provision is part of a larger $3.2 billion bill that would freeze the current $2.75 transit fare and provide funding for six-minute subway service. The city is responding to advocates and organizers who have proved that harm reduction techniques are the best approach to address increased drug overdose deaths. Two overdose prevention centers have saved hundreds of lives since opening in late 2021. However, Mayor Adams has also embraced forced hospitalization for people struggling with mental illnesses. Tenants displaced by Hurricane Ida were violently removed by NYPD officers in tactical gear from a downtown Manhattan hotel they have been calling home for months. New York Focus ranks state lawmakers by who has the highest outside income. This can be found linked on the Thorns newsletter. In elections news, Bronx District Attorney Darcel Clark, first elected in 2015, will face a primary challenge this year from Tess Cohen, who currently works as a civil rights attorney. Although she served on the New York City Bar Association's Mass Incarceration Task Force and has critiqued Clark for being overly carceral, Cohen is herself a former prosecutor. The Fair Elections Coalition, which includes labor and good government groups, is pressuring the state legislature not to delay the implementation of the state's new public campaign financing system. For Revolutions Per Minute, this is Carolyn Van Zeitz. Now back to the studio for today's show. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe thethornnyc.substack.com. So we're going to move on to our first, uh, or I guess our second segment after the headlines. And as an academic worker at CUNY and a member of PSC, I have a very personal stake in tonight's discussion. I sat down with two of my union comrades to discuss our contract struggle, what it reflects about the working and living conditions here in New York City. Let's hear what they had to say. So I'm here with Zoe and Evan, uh, both members of the PSC, and I'm a member as well. So we have a union trifecta uh, for this discussion. And so let me throw this to you, Zoe, first. What social forces propelled you into the labor movement and what's your history of labor organizing? So basically, I got involved with the PSC just pretty immediately um, after I started at CUNY as a graduate student. Um, I started in sort of the rose of the pandemic um, when it just felt like the university system was in total disarray and the people who were being hardest hit were students and adjuncts and um, other employees in more precarious positions. So it just seemed really clear to me that 
union spaces were going to be these sites of struggle where we'd be able to push back on some of the austerity measures that were uh, kind of being implemented during the pandemic. So it just kind of seemed like an obvious choice to me. Yeah, that it, that makes a lot of sense. I remember starting my PhD. I'd already been at the grad center for a couple of years getting my master's and was like aware of this situation, but I started to pay atten- attention a lot more once I you know, started getting my doctorate and sort of work requirements that go along with that and the, the limitations on funding, the sort of the capital issues, the pay, the how little people are paid for such important work. And so I think uh, that definitely pushes people into wanting to get involved and fight back. So Evan, uh, same question to you. Being a, being a millennial um, coming up in through, you know, the Iraq war in 2008, I don't need to, you know, go into all the various calamities, you know, it's sort of the background in my mind of, of this sort of like radicalization that we're seeing right across our generation. But more specifically, you know, I was a, a union like staff organizer um, for a number of years um, after college um, and sort of um, gained some organizing experience there. You know, got a little bit fed up with a uh, way that uh, happens um, in unions. Um, and so I, you know, I, I left that and, and wanted to the way that public school reform has developed in the United States um, and um, naturally, uh, that's sort of, uh, to, um, organizing also, you know, as, as a worker, um, while I'm here, um, at the grad center. So these longer historical developments that are like pushing a huge number of people to get involved in organizing and activism, the, the financial collapse in 2008, the war on terror, the climate crisis. So that was a key factor in sort of, uh, you know, radicalizing you and developing your politics. But then you have the particular situation of being here at CUNY and the, the crisis that is, uh, been long facing, uh, the city university of New York with underfunding, with underpaid workers, with workers who are, uh, always at threat of losing their job. So to hit on this question more broadly, how are CUNY workers and students undermined by austerity? And I'll, I'll throw this to Evan first. Sure. I mean, you know, <laughs> there are almost too many ways to count. Um, but I think, um, you know, what's at the top? ask that question um, is the, you know, I think compared to a few decades ago, right, really the onset of austerity um, in CUNY and, you know, New York City more broadly, um, full-time faculty, but there's still a lot to be done. Um, so, right, the amount of work has, um, it's the amount of, and that means, right, that people are shuttling from campus to campus to campus and, right, can't employment. And, you know, of course, there's a there's a logic to this. I mean, it's saving money. Um, you know, adjunct work is is not paid nearly what it should be. Oh, that's right. That's certainly one way in terms of for students. Um, if, you know, your instructor is full time, stable, uh, tenured, tenured, um, you know, they can be there. Just simply can't um, if they're a they're, uh, you know, treated more or less like temps who are even going to be um, teaching um, at that, that school. Um, so those, those are just two ways, but I'm sure Zoe um, has a lot more. 
Yeah. So it's, it, it, I mean, this has been a long-term process. There's the, you know, the, the transformation of labor relations, the decline of, of tenure, uh, the dating back to the fiscal crisis, the way that tuition has been uh, more important for funding the university as CUNY no longer is free for the students. So the, this has deep roots and it's, it's playing out and sort of in, in, in an abrasive way in this moment. But Zoe, do you have anything to add to that uh, question? Yeah, I mean, I think Evan made some really good points. Um, you know, I see austerity is sort of happening on multiple scales and multiple timelines. So as Evan mentioned, you know, you have this decades long process um, going back to the 70s where you lose free tuition at CUNY, the federal fund or not federal funding, state funding, excuse me, um, for CUNY starts going lower and lower. Um, and there's this increasing reliance on tuition, as you said. And that certainly has, uh, really horrible effects on students. Um, you know, the CUNY system has historically been this amazing university system for social mobility. Um, you know, in study after study, it, it's been proven that CUNY really does a lot to lift up students from the working class and provide these opportunities for social mobility, um, that other universities just aren't as good. At offering. And so, you know, when we see things like higher tuition, um, that certainly makes the kind of education CUNY has traditionally provided less accessible. Um, but then also the like effects of austerity on working conditions just also, um, have become pretty severe, uh, in the recent years. And I, I think actually a good example of this is like, um, there have been recent tuition hikes that have been mandated for CUNY across the system. And at the same time, there have been cuts um, that have been implemented across across campuses. Recently, the chancellor of CUNY mandated that each campus cut, I think, from five to six percent um, of their budgets. So having tuition hikes at the same time as budget cuts is pretty insane. Uh, it's sort of like the austerity is coming from multiple directions and that has these like very real kind of concrete effects where you see, you know, fewer services being provided, things like mental health counseling, um, but also larger class sizes, more overworked professors who are kind of scrambling from campus to campus, you know, classrooms falling apart, ceiling bits coming down. Um, all of these things just have this cumulative effect that really just tears away at the education that CUNY has been able to offer and and really, I think, harms underrepresented students in particular. Yeah, austerity is hitting, as you said, from multiple directions. It's not just impacting the workers at CUNY, it's also impacting the students. And this, in this sense, it can pull the students and the workers apart or it can bring them together. Issues like class size were academics are teaching to more and more students in the classroom at the same time, which makes it more difficult to build the sort of bonds with students to help them learn and improve their knowledge. So class size is just one sort of issue that is facing both students and their uh, adjuncts and professors 
at the same time, this kind of this lack of funding for the buildings themselves where the escalators aren't working or other sort of issues that are being faced, as you said, the, the roof collapsing or maybe even seeing like a mouse in the grad center library, something like that. So austerity hits on multiple fronts. And this is all happening where uh, wages have not gone up to adjust to inflation for adjuncts. So uh, adjuncts are struggling to get by while students are having to take out loans to pay to go uh, to CUNY when it's supposed to be this working class institution of social mobility and uplift uh, for uh, the uh, working people of New York. And so what solutions has PSC pushed uh, for to resolve this crisis? I'll throw that to Zoe first. Yeah, so um, as some people may know, the PSC is currently bargaining for a new contract with CUNY, and its approach to that contract has been, um, I think, really specific and, and granular in looking at the ways that the quality of education has been affected by austerity. Um, so we do, for example, have a bargaining demand for limits on class sizes um, so that, you know, employees and teachers at CUNY can offer um, more attention and, and more in-depth guidance to their students. At the same time, even as we're bargaining for better conditions for both students and workers in our contract, we're also just trying to organize people on the ground, right? And really help them uh, see that the union is there to challenge CUNY management on certain decisions like tuition hikes, which, you know, are sort of beyond the, the purview of the contract. But just because something is beyond the purview of the contract doesn't mean we can't you know, fight back against it. Um, and I think in that sense, sort of what you were saying, like connections between students and workers um, are really, really crucial for this. Um, we have the CUNY Rising Alliance, which puts people across these different titles, faculty, staff, students um, together to organize. And we have sort of smaller campaigns that um, the PSC is trying to work on. Uh, and those campaigns vary depending on the campus. So at the Graduate Center where I am, we have this campaign where we've started a people's pantry to basically offer free, free canned food, free, um, free hygienic products, products, uh, to people in the grad center. And that's because we know that graduate students who are being paid, you know, oftentimes around $27,000 a year, a lot of them are food insecure. Um, and CUNY, despite the fact that it is actually a law for public universities to have uh, food pantries on campuses. CUNY has not put one in the graduate center. So the PSC in kind of collaboration with other groups, we just went ahead and decided to do it for ourselves. So I guess kind of the, the short answer to that is we're trying to do this sort of long-term organizing where we really get people engaged in these fights, but we're also just trying to fill the gaps that austerity has left behind and try to meet people's material needs, which are really growing more and more critical um, with inflation and uh, recent years with COVID. So PSC sort of has this dual strategy of fighting for these demands within the contract, trying to improve the working conditions, increase wages, uh, you know, change the overall structure of how CUNY operates, but also uh, through mutual aid by meeting people, as you're saying, where they are, providing food uh, for students and students are almost student workers at the grad center with this food pantry. So Evan, do you have anything to add? Yeah. I mean, I think what I would add, right, is that, um, you know, I think the, uh, in terms of about 
about right the employment to make um right to make teaching to make academic work um something that so that it is uh for uh, uh q a management to decide that they um and make it right uh put um all of that burden on us it's too expensive i think it's it's also important to say um you know internally um i think that in part uh, um you know the psc um like rutgers uh aaup union others um uh, especially in the public sector compass um almost everyone and that means that right our interests don't always align um but i think i'm encouraged um by the fact that you know it sort of bargaining program um that the needs of the people um who um are sort of at the bottom of the occupation um have been prioritized so you're not just fighting for the the tenured professors or part of the union but in this expansive union that we have with PSC where it's unlike a lot of unions at universities where they're kind of segmented into the various labor categories it's it's the grad students the uh tenured professors the adjunct uh laborers the staff who works at the universities are all together within the same union so this leads in some ways can pose challenges for union organizers to bring everyone together but the the power that can be expressed once everyone is together can be that much more uh powerful in a certain sense by uh bringing the whole university all the workers together to fight in the same struggle so uh, you were both hitting on this already but what are psc's demands for the upcoming contract fight and how have in what ways has the union's program been shaped by the organizing for the common good model so successfully put into action by educators all across the country i'll throw this to evan first sure i mean yeah as as i think um zoe already already put pretty well our um cuny rising alliance which um is a coalition that includes the psc and i think that um right bringing all of these groups together to think about is that um we can use our power to uh make demands on things that are not kind of permissive subjects of bargaining right they're not things that um not things that necessarily is is super important um and i think you know it's you know they're in that um you know it's we can use bargaining to raise demands the agenda so i'm i'm excited about um you know the that we've um created this sort of this notion of uh using bargaining as a leverage for pushing uh more demands so uh zoe what so what are these demands that are being pushed mm-hmm. uh by psc and like how is it related to the notion of organizing for the common good yeah i mean we have so many demands it's hard to summarize all of them but i think uh one of the major things we're pushing for is just higher wages um I mentioned earlier, you know, a graduate student at CUNY, even as they're teaching um, in all of the different campuses um, or across the system, they're making $26,000 or $27,000 a year. Um, and that is just unlivable right now, um, given uh, how much inflation has raised the cost of living. So um, we're all, you know, no matter the title, really rallied around making sure that workers at CUNY are adequately and fairly compensated for everything they do. Um, but there are also sort of creative ways that we're trying to 
lessen the exploitation um, that a lot of workers, particularly adjuncts, are facing. So CUNY really thrives off this model where it can um, get adjuncts, adjuncts to come in, teach classes, pay them very little for their work, and then send them on their way. Um, and that's been happening in universities across the system, or sorry, across the, the country, but uh, CUNY is a, a pretty bad offender in this. And so in the past, adjuncts uh, were only, I think, paid for contact hours, meaning the hours that they were in a classroom actually teaching students. They weren't being compensated for any of the prep work they were doing before or after class. So things like developing lesson plans, meeting with students. And of course, you know, many adjuncts who are so dedicated to, to, you know, being professors and, and educating people, they're going to do that work regardless. Right. So in our last contract, we really bargained for some of that um, labor that happens outside the classroom to be compensated. And I think that's another strategy that we can use this time around. Um, we're also bargaining for things like more autonomy and protections around intellectual property when it comes to online classes. Um, with the pandemic, we've seen, you know, this big turn to online teaching. Um, and with that, there are all of these issues that come up around the professor's control over the content of the class, academic freedom, intellectual property rights, being compensated for the the online classes that you generate if those are recorded and, and used as, as models later on. So that's something that the PSC is really trying to get ahead of in bargaining. And I think it's really important because online classes can be such a profit-generating model for, for universities. And then we also have sort of, like I said, uh, demands that go sort of beyond worker issues um, and are really trying to be based off this model of bargaining for the common good. Um, I think something like class size is a really great example of that. And if it's a demand that we win, something that could have just an amazing uh, downstream effect for people. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about our demands. Um, I hope that you know, management will come to the table soon um, because we are definitely ready to start negotiating. So you have the basic issue, which the bargaining of every contract is over is, is wages and whether people are being paid enough for the labor that they're doing and whether the contract is actually encompassing all the labor that goes in, not just in the classroom, but outside it. And then there's issues related to class size, which the also, if there's less classes, there may be more work available so people can have more adjuncting positions or more people can be hired within the university. So there's kind of a multiplier effect with that. We who believe in freedom. You're tuned to listener-sponsored non-commercial WBAI New York with a moment in women's history. The real issue is repression against anyone who is exercising what we say are our constitutional rights of freedom of speech. Ella Baker, co-founder of the Christian Leadership Conference to Fight Racism and the inspiring force behind SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, after the Greensboro, North Carolina lunch counter sit-ins. Along with CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, SNCC organized the 1961 Freedom Rides and in 64 Freedom Summer to register black voters in Mississippi. Baker says marches are necessary to dramatize injustice, but asks why march to Washington. Why not march 
to Long Island? Why not march to Westchester? Why not march to the slums of New Jersey? Why not march to Harlem, to Bedford-Stuyvesant? Not in terms of a physical march, but in terms of recognizing that what is happening in these places in terms of poverty is a responsibility that has to be dealt with by those who are not impoverished. In other words, those of us who have money have got to speak to those who are in power. Ella Baker says voting is the key. The Ella Baker Center for Human Rights Today advocates for books, not bars, jobs, not jails, health care, not handcuffs. You can hear more Ella Baker and other trailblazers from WBAI's Women's History Collection by becoming a WBAI buddy, a sustaining member of WBAI. $15 a month makes you a sustaining member, a WBAI buddy. You'll receive our extensive Women's History Collection plus WBAI's tote bag and we'll throw in a special gift. Please call 212-209-2950 212-209-2950 to become a WBAI buddy in the name of your favorite WBAI program or in the name of all WBAI shows. 212-209-2950 We're looking for more people to become WBAI buddies. 212-209-2950 Or please go to this website, women wbai.org women.wbai.org to become a WBAI buddy on this Women's History Day. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. I'm Amy Wilson here with Jack Devine, and tonight we are discussing the struggle for a fair contract at CUNY with rank-and-file organizers Zoe and Evan. We will hopefully have time at the end of tonight's show to hear from you as well, so please get your comments or questions ready for that time at the end of the show. We have more to hear from Zoe and Evan, but before we go back to that interview, we want to just pause and take a moment to ask you to support WBAI and become a BAI buddy in the name of Revolutions Per Minute. It's really easy. You just heard the instructions. All you have to do is call 212-209-2950 or go to women.wbai.org. There's a special fundraising treat this month, um, our flash drive of women's history audio filled with fascinating archival sounds from some of the greatest women in history. It's a really cool um, piece of media, movement media archive. And by donating just a few dollars every month, you can bring that home, help WBAI stay on the air for many years to come. Uh, tonight's show, as with many Revolutions Per Minute shows, is personal to me as well as to my co-host Jack. Jack's an academic worker at CUNY. I'm an alum of the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies. And I was taught there um, by many members of PSA, PSC CUNY, 
the union whose rank and file organizers we're hearing from tonight. So something I learned during my program there is how very important CUNY is as a low cost public university that serves the working class of New York City. And tonight we're talking about how CUNY as an institution has borne the brunt of austerity measures and how workers and students have suffered from that. It really puts me in mind of so many other great working class institutions, including media like WBAI. And while we're working together and struggling for a world where institutions that work for the good of all are publicly funded, for instance, we could go back to CUNY being free, just an idea, um, but the sometimes the community needs to come together to support these type of institutions in the meantime. So please consider becoming a BAI buddy in the name of Revolutions Per Minute tonight. If you support a show and a station that brings you the voices of union workers and an insider look at working class struggles, you can call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or visit women.wbai.org to start your monthly contribution today. And to any WBAI buddies or supporters who are already in the audience tonight, we thank you so much. Your contributions mean a lot. And uh, call a friend and tell him to join you uh, donating a little bit uh, of your money every month to WBAI to keep a great working class institution going for many years to come. Thank you, Amy, for that really uh, great pitch. Uh, now let's uh, tune back to my conversation with uh, union comrade Zoe and Evan about the struggle uh, for uh, more funding and for a fair contract at uh, CUNY. So let's roll that, that clip. For these demands, you're fighting on multiple fronts. Like last year, the big push was for the New Deal for CUNY, which is kind of the union is struggling and pushing forward a policy program with the state, with the New York state legislature, with the governor, and is trying to get something passed. And that's something you have to do when you're a public university, where you're not just fighting the central, CUNY Central, the administration over contract demands, but you're fighting for more funding from the state, from the city. You're kind of, you're fighting on two fronts and you have to be doing this at all times. So what strategies are labor organizers at CUNY utilizing as we prepare for a contract fight with the administration? And how has this been shaped by broader struggles that are going on in the city and the state? So Zoe, I'll throw that to you first. Yeah, I mean, I should say that the legislative tactic um, of really lobbying for the New Deal for CUNY is so important um, because the New Deal for CUNY, if it passes would just have so many kind of different um, stipulations that would really improve people's uh, experience of CUNY, including um, free tuition, more mental health counselors, more advisors, things like that. Um, but beyond the, the legislative branch of things, I think we are just really trying to make both students and workers at CUNY see that things don't have to be the way they are. Um, that there is room to push back. CUNY is really good at demobilizing people because it spreads them out over this vast system. And there are so many different kind of bureaucratic hoops that you have to jump through if you're either a student or a worker. And all of that can really have this effect where people just feel like the only thing they can do is keep their heads down and, you know, try to get through um, a day of school or a day of work. And I think being 
an engaging union being a democratic union is about counteracting that, making people feel like the future of CUNY belongs to them and they can organize around it. Um, and so I think, you know, when we're bargaining, you know, we're going to be trying to get rank and file members in the room with us, but we're also going to be doing things like the pantry that I mentioned, where we're getting people involved in these networks of mutual aid, where they'll be able to see that it's, you know, we're really the ones who kind of make the university function and who take care of each other. And I think being part of that can be a really sort of mobilizing and empowering experience. So you're trying not just, you're not just in a fight with uh, CUNY itself or these demands, but you have to build up the power within the union to organize and fight back. You have to make people believe that solidarity is something that's just not inherent, but it has to be believed in through experience of action. So you're doing things like this food pantry in order to fight back. So there's also, we're talking about the state and there's limitations um, placed on the state on what CUNY, uh, what PSC can do in its struggle with CUNY. So how does the Taylor Law limit the options of PSC and should be workers be prepared to strike regardless? And I'll throw this to Evan. Sure. Um, and right. And the, the Taylor Law, for those who might need a refresher, right, this is this law builds on earlier um, anti-strike uh, and frankly anti-worker um, legislation uh, toward directed toward public sector workers in New York State. But right in the late 60s, after almost a decade of um, really right intense uh, worker public sector militancy, right, some uh, really um, harsh penalties like losing um, the ability to take dues out of paychecks, right, even to send um, union leaders to jail. And so uh, this Taylor law, right, this is sort of the specter that um, is always kind of hanging over public sector labor relations in New York. And, um, you know, the PSC obviously um, is um, totally um, affected. Um, and, it, and it means that I think, you know, uh, our union, like a lot of um, unions in the public sector in New York, um, direct their energies toward um uh, the legislative side of things the lobbying um and that's and you know that's by design um and so i think um we should understand that and um but we should also you know recognize that um a law you know a law is just a law uh laws are made up and you know if we can organize enough people um we can overcome um unjust laws like the taylor law but that you know that being said i, I don't want to um sort of pretend as if um, this is just something we can do um, with the snap of our fingers. Um, I think, you know, the kinds of organizing that um, Zoe touched on are going to be really important if, um, you know, it does ultimately our, you know, our contract um, battle ultimately does come to, um, you know, taking a strike authorization vote and, and potentially going on strike. It, you know, has the potential, I think, to, to really galvanize um, the city. But um, we should also, um, you know, be prepared um, and, you know, be upfront with, um, you know, our fellow workers about, um, you know, what potential risks there are, but also, right, what the, um, the what the payoff would be. And I think, you know, we've seen um, here here in the city, right, at NYU, at Columbia, and, you know, across the country, um, both in K-12 um, and higher ed, um, how strikes can have, um, you know, transformational uh, effects. Um, but, you know, it's I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's going to be a lot of work. 
Yeah, so you have the reality that we have this law that seemingly limits the ability of the union to take its most powerful action in withholding its labor, the members acting collectively. But throughout American history and world history, uh, unjust laws have been challenged and, and defeated by people organizing together and acting on their power. And we have uh, huge examples of that in American history with like the civil rights movement and in labor history as well. And so, but in order to do that, you can't just uh, strike on a whim. You have to build the sort of power that uh, both of you guys have been talking about on the ground. You have to make people feel like they're united in a cause together, that they believe that the union can win and that they're willing to take this sort of risk. And Evan, as you just mentioned, people have been taking this sort of risk across the country, maybe not necessarily breaking the law, but withholding their labor in major strikes. Uh, we see, in, as you said, K through 12 education, Chicago, Los Angeles, West Virginia, uh, Arizona. We've seen it in, uh, in academics from uh, the UC strike that was 50,000 withholding their labor to what just happened at the new school here in New York. So there's pr- plenty of examples of victories uh, on the picket lines that have won new contracts. So how have uh, these victories impacted PSC's demands and strategy? I'll throw that to you, Zoe, and we're uh, running out a bit of time, so I'll give you both a chance for a quick answer. <laughs> um, I think it... These, these examples across the country are incredibly impactful in the fact that, first of all, they just, um, really have people paying attention to higher education organizing in a way that I don't think was that common, um, decades ago. So, you know, one of the struggles I come across as like a graduate student organizer is that sometimes graduate students don't see themselves as workers. They see themselves as academics. Um, and that makes them less likely to participate in a mass action like this. But now that, you know, we have the UC system across the coast, or or we we saw that example of them going on strike, the new school right next door, people are sort of waking up and looking around them and and talking about these strikes really enthusiastically to the point where they're asking me, like, why don't we strike? And then I have to talk about the Taylor Law. (laughs) But I just think it does a whole lot for um, people's consciousness. And then, of course, you know, when we see NYU get massive gains for adjuncts, um, I think something around, you know, 10,000 per course in certain cases, that is also extremely galvanizing and really makes us approach bargaining for, for wages in, I think, a much more assertive way. Um, so yeah, I would say it has both this kind of consciousness effect, but then also we're paying attention to the concrete gains that other universities are getting and we're going to be trying to repeat those. Yeah, so people have seen the power that solidarity has and the, the power of labor actions to win material gains uh, for people and they're saying, why not? Why don't we do this? Why not us? So Evan, do you have anything to add? Um, no, not too much. You know, I think, uh, Zoe kind of hit the, hit the nail on the head, right? Where, um, our expectations have been raised. Um, it's on us to, um, see to it that, you know, at CUNY, we can, um, realize those gains as well. Um, and, you know, the last thing I'll say is, uh, I think, you know, if, if, um, I think, you know, I, if you're, uh, not familiar with higher ed or maybe you just think of, you know, higher ed workers as kind of sort of privileged, which is, you know, Occasionally the case, but not, not always, right? What I think of are the stakes here too are, you know, not just our students, um, experience, their, their mobility, but also, right, of CUNY being a place where radical politics can flourish. You know, I think 
I think of um, Donna Murch's book, Historian at, at, at Rutgers, right? She talks about the Black Panthers, right? They obviously have this, you know, a certain uh, very kind of macho image. Um, but where do they start? They started a community college in Oakland. And they were able to do that because they had time, right? They weren't having to work uh, to pay, right? Ridiculous tuition. Um, and, right, so I think that's, right, that should be our aim here is to make CUNY a space um, where, you know, we can sort of connect, um, you know, all sorts of movements together. Change people's visions about how they understand themselves and how they relate to the world and how they can change it. That's a perfect way to end. I want to thank you both so much for joining us on Revolutions Per Minute. Thanks, Jack. Right. Thanks for having us, Jack. You just heard Zoe and Evan from PSE CUNY on Revolutions Per Minute. I'm Amy Wilson. I've got Jack in the studio with me. And you can join us if you'd like to give us a call. 212-209-2877 is the number to call if you have a comment or question about what we just heard about PSE CUNY and their struggle for a new contract. Once again, that number is 212-209-2877. And we have just a couple minutes left in the show, so please do call now if you have a question or comment. We'd love to hear from you out there in the audience, especially, say, if you went to CUNY, maybe back in the day, you taught at CUNY. The university has touched the lives of millions, millions of working-class New Yorkers, so we know we've got some stories out there to be heard. Give us a call, 212-209-2877. Jack, thank you for that interview. So, so interesting. And... Um, I'd just like to add, you know, in addition to what Zoe said and Evan said about um, worker organizing in academia across the country and a couple of these successful strikes, academia is also a really interesting site of new organizing. Duke University is one of the uh, universities that recently um, announced a, a grad student organizing effort. There's tons. It's kind of a hotbed of new organizing, which is really cool to see. And then also just want to give a shout out to um, our comrades and colleagues in the UAW uh, academic side, which we've covered on Revolutions Per Minute before. Um, the reform efforts within UAW, if you're a labor nerd like me and Jack, you might have followed the um, recent leadership elections in UAW and the um, opposition candidate, Sean Fain, who... The ballots have yet to be 100% counted, but looks like he might be pulling off some labor history and, and pulling out a big win for reformers in the UAW, which of course contains hundreds of thousands of academic workers as well. So as we wait for any calls to come in, Jack, anything you want to add um, to our audience about um, anything that you didn't cover in the interview or maybe um, uh, the UAW reform efforts, I'll, I'll open the floor, toss it over to you. Yeah, I just want to build off a couple of the really great points that you're making. I think uh, on when it comes to new uh, academic organizing, we're seeing a lot of uh, unions of uh, graduate student workers uh, win overwhelmingly in elections. I think we saw this recently at Yale where there had been a long-term effort to organize a union there, and they finally did it, and they won with huge numbers. It's happening at MIT, I believe Northwestern, at schools all across the country where we're seeing uh, academic workers come together and realize that uh, they're not just individuals who are doing research and doing teaching, that they are a part of a collective uh, working class within their university, that they're being exploited and that they need to fight back, organize and win. And that the way to improve their material conditions, to improve the working conditions at the school is to form an organization, to form 
a union and to use that union to fight for their interests. So I think it's a really exciting development and we're seeing education really being the center of class struggle all across the country uh, right now where we're seeing it at, at universities, we're seeing in K through 12. There, that's, uh, there's, there's been strikes and there's new labor organizing that's exciting all over the place. It's not just happening in uh, educational spaces, but I think education is is really this, this it's an important institution in our society that it's faced uh, so much austerity. It's also a place where so many people still meet together, get together, uh, where you have uh, teachers uh, meeting with students. Uh, we have in, in students have their parents. So you have the people, the whole community is expressed and is related in, in this institution. So educational organizing is key. And then uh, just to build off uh, what you're saying about the UAW, uh, UAW, the victory, the, the seeming victory, we have the final votes are still to be counted, um, but it's coming off the heels of also transformation of the Teamsters. And these, this is critical development because uh, the Teamsters work are in logistics and logistic workers have huge power over the whole, the whole economy. And people who know the history of the Teamsters of Jimmy Hoffa know that there is a long history of, of business unionism uh, and corruption in the leadership, the Teamsters, it, it was still better to be a Teamster than to not be a Teamster, but it, now it's much better to be a Teamster. And you have uh, Sean O'Brien leading the Teamsters and fighting uh, for working class power and democracy in this country. And we're going to see that with uh, hopefully the new leadership of the UAW, which is also experiencing a lot of corruption, kind of a uh, huge basis of the grand bargain between capital and labor uh, that was formed uh, in the Treaty of Detroit of uh, 1947. So there's this kind of long history of business unionism in the UAW that ultimately led to corruption. So hopefully we're going to see a uh, fighting union, a union that is organized around the principles of solidarity of improving the conditions of their members, but also community. Because uh, this, I think this organizing for the common good model that we're seeing centered in education and education is a place where it's easier to fight along these lines uh, is uh, can be expanded to other workplaces and other uh, communities across the country. I believe we have a caller, so I'll open it up to them. Hello. Hi, you're live on Revolutions Per Minute. What's your name and what's your comment and or question? Hey, is it me? It's you. Oh, okay. Hi, guys. Um, Revolutions Per Minute. What's up, guys? Um so I have a revolution uh, question for you guys, because I know you guys go to a lot of different marches, the Democratic Socialists of America, not just union stuff. And um, so um, I was hoping um, that I was wondering if you guys were going to, like, plan a nonviolent direct action training and have flyering for it at Thursday's March, Thursday, uh, 4 o'clock in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral to stop cop cities everywhere. I know that the Democratic Socialists of America.org Stop Cop City website has information. Um, they're really struggling down there in Atlanta. Um, like 70% of the resident callers um, at this public comment thing um, were against the proposal to build Cop City down there. And despite the survey showing that 98% of Atlanta residents opposed the building of Cop City, um, they're still barely getting any national attention, which is why they had to do all kinds of, like, fireworky things um, that you might have seen national attention. I know um, for the past month um, up until today, 
Amy Goodman was the only person that mentioned anything regarding Cop City, and now there are Cop Cities being planned for um, Pittsburgh, Chicago, California, and Hawaii. So we have a national day. I just wanted to announce that uh, the 9th, um, literally in less than 48 hours, minutes, revolutions per minute. Uh, It's called nationaldayofaction.info, and I'm definitely hoping we can get some more, you know, like the old times. Um, I know I definitely saw the DSA people with an actual sign during a Black Lives Matter protest being like, come to our nonviolent direct action training, and Tortu Gita, who was the first environmentalist murdered by the United States police down in Atlanta, preached nonviolence, and so I think that they would really love that. So Thank you so much for your your call tonight. We are going to go ahead and, and disconnect you because we're coming to the end of our show. But yeah. um, I think both of us are really appreciative of your call. The cop city struggle down in Atlanta has been a really um, brutal struggle and shows signs of escalating in the last couple of days. So we appreciate your announcement of the um, event. Um, we're not allowed to tell people to go to anything or do anything um, as hosts, but uh, we appreciate that you called in and said that. Um, can't speak to DSA's organizational or institutional response to Cop City. All I can say is that police abolition in full is a written stated priority of the Democratic Socialists of America in our national platform. So I really hope that um, that will be expressed in our response to um, future cop cities and the struggle in Atlanta, which is also an environmental struggle. And it's really illustrating sort of the cross section, the intersection of environmental issues and policing, racial brutality. Um, so again, can't emphasize enough. Um, my thanks for your work there. And yes, this is definitely something that we need to keep our eyes on, hopefully cover um, on future Revolutions for Minute shows. So we're coming to the end of our time for this week. Um, Jack, so great to be with you. Thanks for your work um, and thanks for the interview. And um, I'll let you close the show out. Yeah, just uh, going to say one final point is related to what you're talking about, and to, which relates to what we're discussing today, is that we have budgets for the police going up and up in cities at the moment where education is being cut. And we should be spending more money on teachers who are helping people to learn and develop in society and become, uh, you know, good members of a democracy rather than people who are, uh, you know, violent workers for the state. Uh, so I just want to uh, let you know that you've been listening to Revolutions per Minute. I'm listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Connect with us after the show. You can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com on Twitter at NYCRPM. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm Jack Devine. I'm Amy Wilson. And we'll see you next time.